The, uh, this morning we're going to be in Ruth 2, so you can open your Bible to Ruth chapter 2. Not long after I had graduated seminary last year, so shortly thereafter, one morning I was reading, reading in a commentary, and I came to a, a, a Greek word, and it's like I had just taken Greek, and this is only a few months later, and I'm having the hardest time reading it, and I trying again and again and again. I think it was like, it's like, oh, uh, it just didn't make any sense. I don't even know what this word is. After trying for a couple minutes and just being discouraged, like how quickly I forget, I suddenly realize I've been trying to read it backwards. I was trying to read it right to left. I had just taken Hebrew and Hebrew words, you read it right to left. And I'd been reading it backwards the whole time. Once I read it right, it all made sense after that. The providence of God, though, that we've been talking about the past couple weeks. The providence of God is like those, those Hebrew words. Puritan John Flavel says this, The providence of God is like Hebrew words, in that it can be read only backwards. We can only truly grasp God's providence, not ahead of time, but afterwards. Providence isn't best understood in, in the moments of our lives, but after the story has been written. Over the past two weeks, we've been walking through the book of Ruth. And it's a, it's a beautiful story that speaks of this divine, divine providence. As Larry has described it, it is his perplexing and perfect providence. The circumstances of this story, don't, they don't always make sense until you look back after the fact and understand just what is going on. So before we, we jump into the text, what is... What is providence? What exactly are we talking about? This, this question actually came up in our, uh, in our care group this past week. What is providence? And my wife actually asked, is providence even mentioned in the Bible? And I didn't know the answer at the time, so I looked it up. And providence, as a word, is not mentioned in the Bible. Uh, there are certain words that convey a bit of what we mean when we speak of Providence, but there's no verse in the Bible that says, Praise God, for He is provident. Praise God for His divine providence. Rather, Scripture speaks of, of providence in, in a different way. It shows us what providence is. Through stories, through, through the various passages in Scripture, just like the one we're looking at. One of my favorite theologians, Herman Bovink, he says, Scripture in its totality is the book of God's providence. Scripture in its totality itself is the book of God's providence. So what is providence? The providence of God is His preserving, empowering, and governing of all things. God preserves all things, God empowers all things, and God governs all things. Providence rightly understood is about how God relates to His creation. Providence is, is all of God's boundless perfections being put on display for us and in our lives. His wisdom, His power, His goodness, they all shine through when we speak of divine providence. Question and answer 27 of the, the Heidelberg Catechism beautifully summarizes providence by saying this, Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God, by which He upholds, as with His hand, heaven and earth, and all creatures, and so rules them, that all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but from His fatherly hand. Divine providence says all things flow from God's almighty and fatherly hand. When we come to Ruth, we come to one of those stories that puts on display the providence of God. This is one of the main themes drawn out of this book. Ruth is a book that, that shows us God's providence. But our talk of providence is only as good as the character of the one who exercises that providence. If God is only known to be, to be just, but not merciful, knowing that He is in control of all things doesn't necessarily bring much comfort. But the God we encounter in Scripture... He gives us an even clearer picture of the one who exercises this divine providence. He is a, he is a God who shows hesed, loving kindness, 
This word carries massive significance for us. Chesed. This steadfast, loving kindness is not just love and not just kindness. It's much, much more. When God passes before Moses in Exodus 34, God identifies himself in in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 34. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in hesed, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping hesed, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is how God defines himself. This is how he identifies himself. Sinclair Ferguson describes this reality as God's deep goodness expressed in his covenant commitment, his absolute loyalty, his obligating of himself to bring to fruition the blessings that he has promised. His steadfast love obligates himself to bring to fruition the blessings that he has promised. God is a covenant-keeping God. God's love exercised through his divine providence is a love that will never fail. It's a love that we can count on in every circumstance that we face. It's a love that we can count on in all things. Now, before we, before we really get into the passage here, just, just a heads up. We tend to gather together and listen to sermons that have, you might have a proposition statement and three points. And this morning, it's going to look a little bit different. The, the chapter two of Ruth, the whole book of Ruth, is, it's a narrative. It's a story. And how we're going to walk through the passage this morning is by, by telling that story, by looking at that story. So you won't hear me say, all right, point number one, everybody jots it down. So just be thinking, God is after more than just our minds as we hear God's word preached. He is after our, our hearts and our affections. Our gathering together is, is our worship together. Worship didn't end when the last chord was strummed. We are worshiping now as we come before God and behold him in his glory and in his goodness. So my hope, my hope this morning is that your hearts be stirred as we look to the faithful God, the God who keeps steadfast love and kindness to those who are his. Now, over the last two weeks, we've encountered these two characters, Naomi and Ruth. Towards the end of chapter one, despite the incredible commitment that, and loyalty that Ruth exhibits, Naomi has, has returned to Bethlehem bitter and discouraged. Look back just at the page before, chapter 1. Naomi has returned, and, and the narrator, narrator tells us that the whole town is buzzing. Who, you wouldn't believe who just showed up. Is this really Naomi? Look at verses 20 and 21. She said to them, Naomi said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? These are strong words that Naomi uses. Call me bitter. I was full, and now I am empty. God has brought calamity, misery on me. And now here are Ruth and Naomi. The last verse of chapter 1 sets, up for what, up, sets us up for what's to come. It gives us a place and a time. Look at that last sentence. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Ruth and Naomi here at the, cha- at the end of chapter 1 with no food and no future. They're hungry and they're widowed. But they have returned to the house of bread, Bethlehem, at a point where food is plentiful during the harvest. So let's look at Ruth chapter 2. It begins with an unexpected statement. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. The, the narrator brings in a new character, Boaz. He wants us to take note of this guy. He's, the narrator's brilliant throughout Ruth. He's, he's always using foreshadowing and, and wordplay and Here's this guy, Boaz, and he's going to mean something shortly. And as he highlights him, he, he points out two things in particular. First, he points out that Boaz is a, is a relative of Elimelech. He is, he's part of his clan. At this point, we don't know why this matters, but we will soon, and I'm sure 
you all know why. The second thing that, that the narrator points out is that Boaz is a worthy man. Now, to be a, a worthy man, this, this word often was used to refer to a warrior. When, when people in Old Testament times would have heard this word, they would have thought of, of Gideon. It was used in reference to Gideon. Boaz wasn't any conquering warrior or leader, but this word also means that, that he's a man of good standing. He is someone with standing in the community, someone that people looked up to. He was of good repute. The, the narrator is pointing out this guy is not any ordinary Israelite. Then after introducing Boaz, our story it just quickly moves on. Verse 2, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi said to her, Go, my daughter. Ruth and Naomi, they've come back to Bethlehem. And the first thing Ruth, the, the foreigner, the widowed foreigner, sets out to do is to, to go find food. God had given his, his people a law about gleaning. Those who had farms, were, they were required to leave a border around their farms for the, the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed to come and glean, to come and pick the ears of grain that were, that were dropped and that were lying around on the edge of the field. This was essentially a welfare program that God set up. God's law was a law of grace that extended provision from those who had to those who did not. It wasn't much, but it was provision that could keep them alive. Now, one thing that, that doesn't make a lot of sense as you're reading this is, why is Ruth the one making this statement? Like, where is Naomi? Naomi's the one who's brought them back to Bethlehem. The text has not given us anything that says Naomi was too old to go out in the field, or Naomi was incapable of doing this. No, but she doesn't do anything. She seems to lack faith that God is at work in her circumstances. One commentator writes, when we stop believing in God's goodness and give ourselves over to doubt and worry, we easily sink into despairing inactivity. Despairing inactivity. That's what seems to characterize Naomi here. But Ruth, in her kindness and love, in her boldness, she gets up and does something about their hunger. She doesn't just sit around waiting for something to happen. She trusts God, and she doesn't just say, uh, well, let's just, maybe somebody will bring groceries to our front door. No, she trusts God, and she, she takes initiative. She steps out. Where do you find yourself this morning? Who, do you, who would you identify yourself with? You may face adversity like Naomi, and, and you are tempted to just... Stop trying. Maybe it's in a relationship with a, with a child or a friend. Maybe they have disappointed you, they have let you down, and you're just done with it. I'm done, I'm moving on. Maybe it's at work. Maybe your customers or your coworkers, they aren't treating you like, they, like you think they should. They aren't giving you the, the honor, and maybe they're not buying from you like you think they should. And you battle discouragement day in and day out. And this tempts you to just want to throw in the towel. This tempts you to just... Go surf the internet while you're at work. Don't be like Naomi in, in despairing inactivity. Be like Ruth. Look to God's goodness and grace and trust Him for your provision. Commentator Ian Duguid says this, Grasp hold of God's covenant commitment to do us good. If we can once look to the cross, if we can once look to the cross and grasp the height and depth of the love of God for us in Jesus, then how can we doubt his desire to give us everything necessary for life and godliness? We will still not know what the future holds, yet if we know that the one who holds the future cares for us, that first step upward on the long road back to obedience becomes possible again. That commitment Ruth made to Naomi back in chapter 1 that your God will be my God, it wasn't just talk. It wasn't just empty words. She trusts the God of Israel, and she acts. Look at verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. She happened to come. Just so happened that she was 
passing through the field of Boaz. The phrase literally means she, she chanced to chance. The narrator's going out of his way to basically say, as luck would have it, or, hey, as it turns out, he is highlighting that there's absolutely nothing human about what's going on here. The narrator knows that things don't just happen by chance. This is his not-so-subtle way of pointing out that someone is behind all that is going on, down to the details of where his, this foreign widow, this foreigner, this person from outside the people of Israel, to where she gleans. Look at what happens next. Verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Let's just stop there. This is similar to the as luck would have it. Behold. Behold, Boaz. Coincidentally, Boaz just, hey, he shows up at the same time. Behold. Now the bulk of this chapter brings us into three conversations that we're going to see. The first conversation starts here in verse 4 between Boaz and his harvesters. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Here, the Boaz we are introduced to in in verse 1 shows up on the scene. He greets his harvesters calling on the Lord, and they respond in kind. Seeing this relationship highlights some of what the narrator meant when he said that Boaz is a worthy man. He is a man who honors and respects the Lord, and his workers are men who respect him and honor the Lord. Boaz then surveys his field and notices something unusual. He asks his foreman, whose woman is this? He doesn't ask who, what, what is her name. He's asking who, who does she belong to? Who's responsible for her? The foreman doesn't even acknowledge Ruth's name. He acknowledges her her status as a foreigner instead and her relationship to Naomi. Then he mentions what would have been to him the most astounding request. Look again at verse 7, what what Ruth asks. Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. That's crazy. So the law allowed for people that were poor and oppressed to come gather around the edge of the field. And Ruth comes in her, her spunk and in her boldness. She comes and says, hey, can I go in the field and, and gather between the sheaves? This was crazy. Ruth, a, a foreign widow, asked for far more than the law stipulates. And in spite of her vulnerability, As this foreign widow, she takes this big risk by asking for so much more. Boaz is clearly, he's clearly struck by this request and abruptly turns to address Ruth. She must have happened to be somewhat close to Boaz. This moves us into the the second conversation that we're going to see in this chapter. Then Boaz said to Ruth in verse 8, Now listen, my daughter. Do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Boaz comes across this this uppity stranger and he remarkably commends her and welcomes her in, not as a foreigner, but as one of his workers, going beyond even her request. So here, not only does he give her provision in saying, yeah, Come on into the field. But he also provides protection. Haven't I said that the, to my workers not to touch you? Provision and protection. Boaz is certainly a worthy man. Look how Ruth responds in verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. 
and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth had come to Bethlehem as a stranger. Her mother-in-law has seemed to show really little kindness to her, in spite of Ruth's sacrificial and, and committed love. Ruth is vulnerable. She's despised as a foreigner. She's a widow. But she has come to Bethlehem because she believes something. She believes that God will provide. And so she goes out, not knowing what danger and ridicule might await her. Now imagine how sweet the words of Boaz must have been for her. She'd come as an alien, and now she was being welcomed in and provided for. Now the setting this conversation then shifts, verse 14 And at mealtime, so a little while later, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread, and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean. And do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Boaz has welcomed Ruth into his field, and now he welcomes her to his table. And Boaz continues to extravagantly and unusually bless her. Notice here how Boaz views the law. As, as the landowner, he was obligated to show some provision for the poor, for the marginalized, by leaving the edge of his field unharvested. So isn't that enough? Boaz could easily calculate how, how small of an edge he could leave for the poor, for the stranger, the oppressed, but he doesn't. Boaz views God's law as flowing out of God's love. God's love flows out of his love. God's law is a reflection of God's loving kindness, his hesed. So when Ruth comes to glean because of the law, Boaz shows love. Sinclair Ferguson says, Love shows the fullness of the grace of God in the law. In Boaz's hands, the law of God is an instrument to display the riches of the hesed of his Lord. He literally heaps blessing on Ruth and Naomi. Ruth had come hungry and was leaving full. But more than that, not only were Ruth's needs being met, God was meeting Naomi's needs needs too. Ruth was given so much at mealtime that verse 14 says she had some left over. She came hungry and she's walking out with a doggy bag. But that's not all. Boaz's generous instruction to allow her to glean among the sheaves and for her to pull grain from the bundles provided a ridiculous amount of food. Ruth walked out with an ephah of barley. Now, I mean, if you're anything like me, you know exactly what an ephah is. I have no clue. So I looked it up. This is around 30 pounds of grain. 30 pounds of grain from just one day's work. This past week, my wife had gotten some some topsoil and it was like a 30-pound bag. And I didn't let her carry it inside. And here Ruth is traveling from outside the city with 30 30 pounds of grain slung over her shoulder. A typical ration for for a worker during those times was one to two pounds per day. For a poor gleaner like Ruth, a good day might get her maybe half a pound to a pound of grain. Ruth had left her home with Naomi that morning with nothing in her stomach and nothing in her cupboards. She was likely unsure of where her her next meal would be coming from. But that night, Ferguson comments, in the evening she returns home, not only full, but staggering under the weight of God's blessing and provision. Ruth returns with her, her 30 pounds of barley, food for the next several weeks. And here we pick up the third conversation. Look at verse 18. And she took it up. And went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. 
She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his, his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman of, women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Upon Ruth's return, we encounter a different Naomi. The last we heard from her, she was bitter. Even that morning, she sent Ruth off, not with a, oh, thank you so much for going out, just with a, go, my daughter. Now she is ecstatic. She's caught a glimpse of the hesed of God. She has not been forsaken. And more than that, through Ruth's faith and initiative and the kindness of Boaz, she has been provided for. Not just for that day, but into the near future. Ruth would be working with Boaz's harvesters over the next several weeks throughout the harvest. Naomi, the woman who that morning was despairing and lacked faith in despairing inactivity, as Ian Duga described it, she is now rejoicing in the God who doesn't forsake those who are His. Completely undeserved favor God has shown Naomi. But she doesn't stop there. She also... She starts the scheme. Whereas Ruth just seems to be overwhelmed by this, this lavish kindness of Boaz, Naomi begins to angle for something a little bit more. Look at the end of verse 20. She says, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. You can kind of see the wheels turning in her head. <laughs> through Boaz had come provision. Perhaps through Boaz, another need could be met, a future. We'll have to stay tuned on that one. Chapter 2 closes with Ruth gleaning in Boaz's field until the end of the harvest. No doubt Ruth and Boaz throughout this time were in fairly regular contact. Boaz would regularly go out and check his fields. Ruth would be there. But now the harvest was, the harvest was ending. And there wasn't any guarantee that this interaction would continue. While Naomi and Ruth's need for food had been abundantly met, they still lacked future hope in any real way. Chapter 2 ends, and Ruth lived with her mother-in-law. She had no husband. Naomi had no children, no posterity. Everything Naomi had given her life to in her family was still in tremendous peril despite this, this temporary provision. Gathered together here this morning, we know how God is going to provide for Ruth and for Naomi. I assume most of you do, at least. He provides above and beyond what either of them could ever imagine. But, again, we're going to save the rest of that story for the next two weeks. Instead, I want us to camp out the remainder of our time in the, the unknowns of our lives. We don't know what lies ahead. We don't know how our needs are going to be met. We don't know if the, the challenges we face or the, the diseases that we suffer under, if we're going to find rest and healing. We don't know how, how any of these things are going to be resolved. Our stories are still unfolding. So how do we walk through life when all we, we experience and all we can see is God's, God's dark providence, God's frowning providence? To help us here, I have a, a good friend we're going to hear from by video shortly. Uh, this friend, my wife and I, Christine, we became good friends with uh, her and her husband uh, over the time that we were in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, we have much to learn from, from her example as she faced dark providence. One of the 
the last meals that we had with someone in Louisville was with, with this couple, and uh, they enjoyed food almost as much as we did, and so it was fun to get together, eat, eat a good meal, and just talk about the future. And for us, talk about this transition. For them, talk about their hopes of maybe someday being a part of a church plant in a different part of Louisville. And uh, we just we enjoyed just recounting our, our hopes and dreams for, for the future and enjoyed each other's company and the, company and the good gift of food. But that was the last time that we will ever get together with both of them together. So Becca is, uh, we're going to watch Becca Stevenson, her, her testimony here shortly. Juan's going to get it started. Listen to her story and, and learn from, from her example as we watch. And then I'll come up and share some closing thoughts. I've never been up here before, but the, uh, the scenery is beautiful. Many of you know who I am. But for those of you that don't, my name is Rebecca Stevenson, and I am up here to tell you about what the Lord has been doing in my life during these last months. It's actually a very difficult story. It's painful and rather tragic. It doesn't have a happy ending in sight, and at the end of it, I wish that I could tidy up all the loose ends for you and tell you how it's all worked out for the best. But it hasn't yet. So before I get ahead of myself, here's a brief recollection of what the Lord has done in my life in the last year. First, he brought my family, our family, to this body, Sovereign Grace Church of Louisville. What joy this fellowship has given to our family. All of you, even the ones I don't know. (laughs) The time that our family spent at Sovereign Grace together was the highlight of our married life, of our family life. We love being a part of this church body. Also, last summer we were expecting our fourth child, our first little boy, and we were so excited about welcoming him into our family. He's over here being noisy. Last summer, however, God took our family down a sudden dark path. One morning that seemed like every other morning, my husband... My beloved best friend, my husband Wade's car, was hit by another driver, and he was killed almost instantly. Many of you that were there with me that morning in the hospital when we found out that he was gone. We shared that first shock together and the first of many, many tears. The following week, in a hazy cocktail of mixed emotions, our baby boy was born, and we were so happy, and we were so sad. We brought home little Nicholas, and the following week, when he was four days old, we had to rush our daughter Phoebe to the emergency room, where she stayed in the ICU and then the hospital for several days with a septic infection in her leg. When she recovered and we finally left the hospital and our family limped home, I realized that I had been in the hospital three times within the space of two weeks for the death of my husband, for the birth of my son, for the illness of my daughter, As I relate this story, I still find it all to be surreal. Surely this didn't happen to me, to my ordinary little family. So when our pastors began preaching to us on the book of Job last September, I was listening with everything in me. Like a dry sponge soaking up water, I needed to hear about Job. Week by week, as we went through the book, we've been reflecting on the nature of God and the problem of suffering, and it has been a time of great mental and spiritual wrestling for me, a time of questions and confusion, and I've been tracking along with Job in some of my darkest moments. 
asking, what happened to me? Why does God seem to be against me? Did I do something wrong that caused this calamity? Is it even okay for me to be thinking these things and having these agonizing questions? But I would hear Job articulating these feelings and submitting them to the Almighty, and I found that I was waiting eagerly week after week for when God would finally speak and answer Job, and we would get some answers, right? And the week finally came, and God was ready to answer Job after chapters and chapters of difficulty. And C.J. read these words that God spoke to Job, and I want to read them to you, too. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther, and here your proud waves be stayed. And as I heard these words from God, a great sense of calm came over me, like warm honey. I let the omnipotence and the omnipresence and the sovereignty and the utter love of God absorb all my questions and all my bewilderment into himself. And we had a moment together that day, me and God, so that I could remember God knows that I do not need answers so much as I need the comfort and peace that is available by trusting in him. And I found, like Job, that my questions could only be adequately answered in God himself. That the only safety, the only comfort for me was to be found in God's magnitude and in his complete goodness and love for me. And I also became increasingly aware that I had a huge comfort that Job did not have. I had the comfort of the cross and what took place there for Wade and for me. And I had the comforter, the Holy Spirit. Jesus told us that he would come and be of immeasurable help and comfort to us. And I find that in my grief, the Holy Spirit dwells among my thoughts and helps me with them, guiding them and guarding them and soothing them and turning my hurt towards God. I'm amazed at the peace that passes understanding that the Spirit pours into me when I ask Him and when I pray for faith and for help. As I say this, it might seem that all is now well with me, that this answered all my grief and my struggles. But in all honesty, the last few weeks have been some of the hardest mental battles that I have yet faced with depression and fear pulling me down towards the pit. It is a moment-by-moment clinging to Christ and to the truth that he is guiding me through this valley of the shadow of death. Moment-by-moment, he alone keeps me in his hand. At the end of Job, another phrase stood out to me in the last chapter, and that phrase was this. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. That the Lord had brought upon him. There it is. Not Satan, not Job's sins, but the Lord. How do I think about this? I saw a quote from Spurgeon that spoke to this, and he says, It would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. 
Could I believe this sentiment to be true for me? I find it odd that I can, and even more odd that it comforts. Certainly, it would not be a comfort to think that Satan was in charge of my sufferings or my circumstances. But our Lord knows all things, and no purpose of his can be thwarted. How reassuring that he has numbered our days and has kept every tear in his bottle. When I look around this room, my heart is filled with love for all of you. And I feel a deep bond of kinship in our Lord. A bond that's deepened by shared sufferings. You have prayed with me and for me. You have cried with me. You have joked and laughed with me. You have hugged me. You have cared for my material needs, and you have cared for my spiritual needs. You have loved my children. All of these things you have done, and you continue to do them. And God uses you to encourage me tremendously. Because of Christ and the work he has done in each of you and in all of us, I have not had to deal with friends like Job. My experience in this has been the total opposite of Job, and I have seen the name of the Lord go forth glorified to many non-believers because of the witness of this body of believers and how they handled Wade's death and cared for our family. While I'm still working through many painful days, I know that God will not forsake me, and I am counting on him to sustain me and to enable me by his grace to speak of him what is right and to bear witness of his love. One day when Christ makes all things right, we will all be together again, and we will look back and see God's goodness throughout our darkest nights. And we will delight in the Lord together with Wade and with so many brothers and sisters and children who have gone on ahead of us into Jesus. I long for that day with all of you. And I'm grateful to my Savior who makes this hope possible. Thanks. The, uh, a moment that I will never forget the week that Wade died was at the uh, memorial service and, and Beckett asked if I could help lead the, lead the singing afterwards and she asked that we sing the song we sang earlier, New Again. And leading that song and seeing her singing, we're blinded by trials, our lives marked with pain, shadows surround us, but there's hope today. When sorrows run deep and the night is long, may we find peace in the Savior's song. And then hands raised, her, her seeing Beck singing, Death is defeated and Jesus reigns. Tell the world there is hope in His name. He pushed back the darkness and He conquered our sin and Christ will make all things new again. Seeing the way that these realities transformed her perspective of the, the darkest moments of her life, her, of her life was, was remarkable. I share her testimony with you this morning because that story isn't over yet. She still will go to sleep tonight alone. And we can go through Ruth and, and talk about God's providence and God's faithfulness. And we know there's a happy ending. We know what God is going to do through Ruth and through Boaz, what he is going to provide. It can be easy to take for granted God's steadfast love when we already know what's going to happen. But in our lives this morning, we don't know the outcome. We don't know how our situations are going to be resolved. We don't know how Beck's situation is going to be resolved. But I love what, what she shared in her testimony She's not looking for answers, but comfort and trust in God. Your situation, whatever you face, is in God's good and sovereign hands. His, his providence, while perplexing, bewildering, is perfect. 
God is the one who, who preserves. God is the one who empowers, who governs all things. So rest, rest in Him. Charles Spurgeon famously said, when you cannot trace His hand, you must learn to trust His heart. So for us, our hope, our hope cannot be set on a particular outcome that may or may not come to pass. God's ways are not our ways. Our hope is in a God who shows steadfast loving kindness to His children. Our hope is in a God who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? How will He not also provide for our needs? The, the famous hymn says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when everything seems good, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And in the third verse, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. We trust the one who is both almighty, he's capable to do all things, and fatherly. He gives good gifts to His children. God gives us stories of His his faithfulness, pictures of His character so that we might know who He is. That's what this book is about. It's about His divine providence. Sinclair Ferguson describes the, the divine autograph, the signature of God. The book of Ruth tells us, he writes, this is the handwriting He uses to write His autograph. When we are in this or that situation, feeling our way in the darkness, not able to see his hand, trace his design, or interpret his purposes, we nevertheless know the kind of thing he does, and we know the kind of God he is. He uses the same handwriting and displays the same providential care for our lives as in the lives recorded in Scripture. What a comfort that thought is. He uses the same handwriting and displays the same providential care for our lives as in the lives recorded in Scripture. To recognize God's providence, to know His handwriting, is not just some philosophical, abstract idea. It's a confession. We confess that all things are in the hands of the Almighty God. All things, the joy and the sorrow, the hope, and despair. Our God is a God merciful and gracious, abounding, abounding in steadfast love and kindness. He he abounds these things. There is no limit to this grace, to this mercy, to this this loyal, never-changing love. Nowhere is this more clearly seen than in God through Jesus Christ. This is where God's covenant commitment, love, is put on display for all the world to see. Here God withheld not His own Son. Jesus Christ came into this world and He took our shame. He bore our sin. He paid our debt. And by trusting in Him, His righteousness is our righteousness. His life is our life. His blessing is our blessing. And if you're here this morning and you haven't placed your trust in the one who has taken your sin, turn to him and trust in him. Today can be a day of salvation for you. God is in the business of taking that which is dead and giving it life. May he give you new life this morning. Brothers and sisters, trust him as the faithful God. Trust Him with the circumstances of your life, the small and the big, the easy and the impossible, the joyful and the heartbreaking. He is a God who keeps steadfast love to the thousandth generation. Trust, trust His divine providence, His perplexing but perfect providence. There was a, uh, in the 1930s, there was a guy, Thomas Dorsey, who went to a revival in St. Louis to lead the music at it. And his wife was expecting a baby in Chicago. He goes to this revival, and he planned on only staying for a few days. And after he'd been there for two days, he gets a telegram. And the telegram tells him that his wife has given birth to a baby boy. 
but his wife didn't survive. Dorsey then heads home, discouraged, depressed, uh, bewildered. And he heads home to meet his, his new son. And as he arrives, just a short few hours after he arrived, his son passed away. In the weeks following, Thomas Dorsey penned, he penned these words. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on, let me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord. Lead me home. Take my hand, precious Lord, and lead me home. I conclude with this. And Lord, haste the day. Haste the day when our faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound. And the Lord shall descend. And even so, it is well with our souls. Lord, we look to you, the God who is merciful and gracious, the God who abounds in steadfast love and kindness. This is who you are. This is, how, this is your character. And you relate to us in your divine providence. You preserve all things. You empower all things. You govern all things. Through life's tears and suffering, we look forward with joy to the future. Lord, although in this life all of our riddles are not solved, we trust your almighty hand. We trust your, your fatherly hand that exercises rule over all things. Lord, we hope in you, and may we find peace, peace in you. Lord, I pray for the brothers and sisters here that are, that are facing significant suffering. Think of Mike Stogsdill and Kathy Charnley in particular, Lord. Pray that you would bind them up, comfort them with who you are. You are a God who is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. And Lord, may we as a, as a community be marked by this hope. May it, may it transform how we view every circumstance of our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.